This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where a thousand generations of podcasters live in us now. We are here, of course, to discuss and examine this year's Star Wars offering, The Rise of Skywalker, the same way we always do, alone with friends. My very own brother is here, as always. Scott, is there anything about our last Jedi podcast that you want to announce is no longer true? Well, actually, now that you mention it, we discussed this on our recent score show. I've sort of reevaluated my position on The Last Jedi score, which I said I was a fan of when we were reviewing the movie, but in retrospect, with some time to reflect on it and comparing it to the rest of the franchise, I'm not as much a fan of. Meanwhile, I expected to like it a lot more on on revisiting and kind of didn't, but that's Of course, in our uh, Star Wars score shows, our last three episodes, which all you fine, fine listeners can find wherever you find a thousand generations of podcasters, I am also very, very glad to say that Alana Kelly is back with us on the podcast once again. Alana, it's been a little while since you've been able to come on and talk Star Wars with us, but of course, no one's ever truly gone. Please tell us. Have you ever underestimated a droid? For sure I have, and I would have been real wrong, and was wrong. I'm sure you paid the price. Hmm. We will also be joined periodically by special guests, who will be a totally organic and seamless part of the show, and not at all just us trying to manufacture a context where we can use old clips we already have. Now... Let's get started with our traditional non-spoiler segment. Fundamentally, this movie had to serve the twin demands of capping off the sequel trilogy and capping off the entire mainline episode-numbered series. So I'm wondering, Alana, how did that affect your expectations for this movie? And without spoilers for this segment, do you think it was successful at either or both? Great question and excellent context. You're right. It definitely had two jobs to do. I was feeling nervous because of the scope of what was hopefully going to get accomplished narratively and emotionally and with all the different character arcs. Expectations wise, they were high again because... What I think of when I think of Star Wars is I, I think of this like vibrating generational fandom and J.J. Abrams' approach to his work is as a fan. Like People criticize him for being derivative, but I think that actually serves him 
in this because he has obsessively studied the source material, is a fan of the OT, and I think he did well with a job that was so difficult. I think there are definitely some some fair critiques that can be leveled. Uh, there was definitely some retconning that went on, and that's always kind of tricky to accept when you're conscious of it. It can be a little distracting when you're taking in what you're supposed to be taking in. I think it did very, very well at the saga aspect of it, the one through nine conclusion of the Skywalker saga. I think it did excellent in that realm. And as a conclusion to the prequel trilogy, I think it's slightly more awkward. If you look at only the three films and how that works, there's some stuff, but it's mostly with the beelines and secondary characters. The main characters, I think, are still served. So I was, I'm going to say, on balance, a happy camper and a happy viewer. Scott, what do you think about the way that this movie handled its demands and its purposes, and what were your expectations? I didn't really have any specific expectations. I was sort of nervous when it was announced that J.J. Abrams was going to be making the third movie, because one of the things that I liked a lot about The Last Jedi was the way that it did away with a lot of the mystery box stuff that J.J. Abrams had done in The Force Awakens. I thought that had like really effectively gotten rid of a lot of dross, so the story could now focus on the characters and the story going on without just like a bunch of woo-woo mysteries just for the sake of woo-woo mysteries. And so bringing J.J. Abrams back made me nervous, and some of those fears turned out to be justified. I would actually disagree with your premise. I see no reason why this movie had to serve as a finale to a nine-film saga, because I would disagree that there was a nine-film saga before they started marketing this movie. There's three trilogies that are sort of interconnected, as in, like, there's some shared characters, and the stories take place one after another, but... There was no real reason, I felt, why this last movie had to be the finale of the nine-film saga. I think it would have been much better served if they had just tried to make a satisfying finale to this three-film sequel trilogy. I think that's the biggest mistake they made in the conception and plotting of this movie. I agree that it probably would have been better if it had concerned itself more exclusively with being a satisfying conclusion to the sequel trilogy, but also, I don't think it's hard to see why they felt they needed to wrap up a nine-film saga, not just for marketing reasons, although also for marketing reasons, but I think just being in the mainline numbered series connects them in a fundamental way. Having been, until Rogue One, the only Star Wars movies, I think connects them in a fundamental way. And also, the sequel trilogy has had very major roles for the stars of the original trilogy, developing from the original trilogy in a way that obviously the original trilogy never could have from the prequel trilogy, and in a way that the prequel trilogy failed to connect back to the original trilogy. And so, all three of these sequel movies were very, very closely tied in to the original trilogy. Again, partially for marketing reasons, but also in ways that deeply affected the storytelling. And so, wrapping up that entire story, I think, was always something that this movie would have to try to do. Agree. 
See, I don't think that needed to be wrapped up. I think the story of the original trilogy was wrapped up in the original trilogy. And the story of the prequel trilogy was wrapped up in the prequel trilogy. And so I don't think there was anything that needed to be picked up by this sequel trilogy other than here's another story from later in the timeline. And some of the people that we've already seen before are still around to be a part of this story, but it's another story just later in the same shared universe. Like, before this movie, in Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, what lingering plot threads from the original trilogy were being picked up in those movies? Other than, hey, Leia's here, and hey, Luke's here, and hey, Han's here. Well, I was interested in the death of Luke. I think that's really important and a really deep connection to the OT. And Luke is connected to Anakin, so that connects it back to the prequel trilogy. Like, it's there. I think, like, from an artistic perspective, it would have been easier, better, tighter, more direct to focus on concluding 7, 8, and 9. I actually agree with you on that one. But since they attempted to that wrapped up one through nine i was actually impressed with some of the choices they made in order to connect it one through nine well i guess that's where we disagree because i definitely wasn't and we'll get into that more in the spoiler section i know right it's so hard to discuss uh <laughs> with a spoiler barrier because there's important stuff and and i think another important thread actually is a spoiler so uh, we may we may have to move to a different discussion well, one, one last note I want to make before we move on from the non-spoiler section. Well, a couple, actually. First, I think that the deep connections of the sequel trilogy to the original trilogy aren't just that they have some of the same characters, it's that it's still fundamentally the same conflict. I mean, the First Order is basically, you know, the Empire with a new coat of paint on it and some different people. In fact, in Rise of Skywalker, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, you know, one of the characters is very explicitly from the old Empire. So, the war is still fundamentally the same, especially after the New Republic is destroyed in the middle of The Force Awakens. The conflict is fundamentally the same, not just that it's a lot of the same people fighting it. And... The character arcs that Leia and Han and Luke have in Force Awakens and Last Jedi are very much a reaction to the fact that that is the case in these movies. You know, there's the plot element of Leia and Han being estranged and kind of each going back to what it is they most naturally do. Leia is still fighting and Han goes off to be a scoundrel again. And there's that character beat that kind of calls back to the cyclical nature of some of these things. And I can see how Rise of Skywalker is trying to use those cyclical elements. If you want to be cynical about it, I could see why J.J. Abrams just keeps doing the same things that Star Wars already did, because that's what a Star Wars movie is to him. But if I'm going to try to be nice... <laughs> You know, that there are stories that are cyclical, and there are thematic elements to that that you can draw on. I don't think that this movie is particularly successful when it comes to calling on those story elements and commenting on the entire series, and even culminating just the sequel trilogy in a way that is satisfying. 
Before we end the non-spoiler section, I just want to go around once and say, fundamentally, do you think this movie was any good? I... <laughs> when we got out of the movie on opening night, the first two words that came to mind for me were hot and mess. And having seen it again since to get a little more detail and to see what it was like to watch the movie without the, like, Schrodinger's cat tension between what they were going to do between some binary choices we're going to talk about later on, I found without that tension, I definitely had an easier time watching the movie, but I don't think it came together anymore cohesively. Alana, what do you think about, fundamentally, whether this movie was any good? I actually think it was good, and I will just make a couple brief arguments about that. I think the writing held up. Uh, we have examples of many different scripts in this set of films, and like I'm always nervous about the writing. Like it's the writing so critical, and uh, even even the best actor can't save a script that won't work. And I think the characterizations mostly held up. There's a couple of problems, and I'm sure we're going to get into that. But in general, characterizations held, which is so important in a cycle kind of thing, when there's more than one story. So I was into that. The acting is top-notch again. When we came into Seven and brought in some new characters, um, these people can really act. That adds a lot of value for me. I think visually, there's a lot of stunning stuff in this piece. A lot of amazing use of the environment. There is some CGI, but it's less intrusive than it's been. They actually chose to do less with it than I think in any of the films that we've seen, excepting the OT when CGI didn't exist. But like this one is very low CGI and they used way more practical stuff to achieve the look of some of these things. They use moods from before. They use music to do this. They use visual aspects, framing choices, direction choices to connect and give it the Star Wars signature, which I really needed to happen. I really needed it to be connected to feel good about it. Does it stand on its own, which I think is an important question when you're saying, is a film good? That's really hard to evaluate as someone who's such a huge, huge fan. But I think there's really good stuff happening with Ray and Kylo's relationship that works within this story. It works also in the arc, in my opinion. I know we're about to have feelings about that. But for me, the film has good writing, good acting. It looks good. And I enjoyed it. So I'm going to go with good. It was good for me. Scott, what do you think? There are some really fun scenes in this movie. I'm not going to itemize them because that would be spoilers. I just barely stopped myself from itemizing them because that would be spoilers. <laughs> yes, thank you. There are some scenes that are a lot of fun. There are some stuff that's very entertaining. There are some character moments that are really good and very affecting. But overall, the whole thing as a whole, it just doesn't hang together to me. The story just goes too many places where I can't follow it. That is, I, I think, very well put. Tim, when you first got out of the film, what did you think? What the fuck is this shit? Hot take. Yes, a hot take perhaps, but that really sums it up. Let's move on now to spoilers. Please, I beg of you, if you have not seen this film, stop and see it or just decide that you're not going to before listening to the rest of the show because 
Hoo boy, let's get into everything. Where does one even start? Um, let's start with something that I think opinions are going to be a little passionate about. Alana, would you like to gloat about Raylo for a while? Oh no. Okay, so I have complex feelings about this. Here's what I feel about the Raylo situation. And in case people don't frequent Tumblr, that is the couple name for the relationship between Kylo Ren and Ray. So that's referred to as Raylo. There's a lot of art and a lot of writing about that. So I enjoyed additional context. I think it's weird that it was never mentioned until this, but I think it does hold up upon reflection that they are a forced dyad. We're told that the connection between them was fostered by Snoke, which turns out was actually fostered by Palpatine. So that's an additional piece that you could argue doesn't belong because it wasn't given foundation, but it's explained as a dyad. So if you're willing to take that piece of it, so there's two of them and they are both trying to figure out how to use their extreme levels of force sensitivity. and. I was satisfied by the hint that Ray was exceptionally gifted that's given to us in The Force Awakens because she's able to access force energy to deal with Kylo Ren when he captures her without being trained, without knowing what she's doing. She falls into it pretty well. This explanation of force diet connects that a little bit. I'm, I'm okay. I'm going with it. I'm, I'm accepting the premise. The way that they are connecting with each other connects to the end of the last Jedi. They reference the scene directly where Kylo extends his hand and invites Rey to stand with him, and she can't do it because he's standing in the darkness. He's not coming over to her. He's requesting that she come to him, and she will not. And we get more detail about why that was and, and the tension. The tension in the scene in The Last Jedi is electric, and we get more explanation for that, which is that Rey feels something for the Ben component of Kylo Ren. Like he's a schism, he's a split character. And she has a strong feeling about when he is Ben, when he is away from the Kylo Ren path that he made for himself, the identity that he made for himself in order to try to understand his power and achieve more power. So that that's happening. They speak to each other multiple times. There's multiple scenes of them using their force bond, the, the dyad, the connection that they have mentally. And a lot of that was visually stunning. They used it to move the plot in a way that I enjoyed. They brought different interpretations of the connection, where the character is looking, the way their bodies are moving through the force connection, their perception of each other gets richer and richer as the story goes on. And then I got to tell you, so we're getting to the end of it now. I got to tell you, I kind of wish there wasn't a kiss, even though I'm hugely Raylo, but I'm obsessed with unresolved tension. Like that's my tag that I search because I think it's amazing. So I kind of wish there wasn't a kiss, although I think that the kiss, is earned like if you want the kiss you're gonna like the kiss because it it was a quality kiss and it is definitely stunning to see kylo slash ben smile because uh, he has not done that in the entire trilogy and he appears that he never ever 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 smiles so that that's just like it's a strong character moment if you're gonna buy into the whole Raylo thing uh and then the, la the last thing i guess i really want to get into and, and love about the Raylo thing is Ben has to drag himself out of the chasm that Palpatine chucked him in. And we see that the energy that it took to defeat Palpatine kills Ray. She's dead on the floor. 
and he comes over to her and earlier in the film she wounds him in a way that would be mortal and then heals him we've seen that she's used her ability to heal they they set that up in the story so she heals him and so he very gently you know picks her up like they're in real physical contact a lot of the time they're in like this mental space where they think they're around each other physically and are not and now they're actually together in the moment there's no weapons and um the way that he physically handles her is so human and gentle and not sexually charged at all. Like there's no sexuality to the way that he picks up her body and manipulates her. It's so gentle and so careful that I found it to be extremely moving, really moving. And then he uses his force energy to bring her back. And that ends up being an act that is fatal for him. So if you were a Raylo person, I think you would really enjoy what happens in The Rise of Skywalker. I wish it had stayed unresolved, but if you wanted to see a kiss, it's a good kiss. When I mentioned earlier that I was kind of in a sort of tension as far as the almost quantum superposition of possibilities with various elements of this story, one of them was, are they going to do Raylo? And another one was, are they going to do the Bendemption? Which, yes, I mean... <sighs> Despite appearances, I really do try to be an optimist sometimes, and despite appearances, I do try to live in hope sometimes. So did you want the Bendemption? No, I did not want the Bendemption. And I know Scott didn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> but just briefly, we discussed this in The Force Awakens, and I actually listened to that recently to kind of prep for this, and Scott said that Kylo has to die. And he did. Yes, that's the one part of this that I actually liked. Nice. <laughs> I appreciate it too. I'm not the only one to make this point. I've seen this point made often, but it is definitely a point that I agree with is that for a character like Kylo Ren, just like a character like Darth Vader, for a character with those types of atrocities and that type of evil in their history, I think that the only way that kind of person can ever conceivably be redeemed is if A, they die as part of the redemption, and B, they're fictional, so their crimes weren't actually real against real people. <laughs> and Kylo does meet those two criteria. I was not really looking forward to the redemption of Kylo Ren, I know you'll disagree with this, Alana, and I hope you don't take this personally, because I definitely don't mean it personally, but in this, the year of our impeachment, 2019, I need my violent fascist man-babies to suffer consequences for their crimes. So I was not here for the Bendemption. Mm -hmm. And I really don't want to get into shipper wars or anything like that, because that's just a thing that I don't even want to argue about. You do you. Everyone has their own thing they're into, and I don't want to get on anyone for their preferences. You don't want to yuck their yum. Essentially, yes. Very egalitarian, Scott. I mean, people ship all kinds of weird things that I wouldn't, and that's fine. But from my perspective, the way I read the story, Kylo is very manipulative towards Rey. He's 
very emotionally abusive towards her. He's at times physically abusive towards her. Let's not forget that the first time they met, he forcibly restrained her, knocked her out, essentially force roofied her, kidnapped her, brought him to his prison detention center, and tried to force himself into her mind. So, mm -hmm. then he spent all of The Last Jedi trying to emotionally manipulate her in many of the same ways that Snoke was emotionally manipulating him. So that's the sort of the cycle of violence, the cycle of abuse right there. I found their resolution in Last Jedi very satisfying because they were sort of dancing around each other. They both had developing feelings for each other. They both saw the other as sort of a kindred spirit and someone they could open up to and someone who could be a close companion or a romantic partner. But then they reached a point where they both had to acknowledge that there were irreconcilable differences between them. And you could see that Daisy Ridley's acting is excellent. After the fight, after they kill Snoke, where Kylo invites her to join him. And you could see on Daisy Ridley's face just the crushing disappointment that she has that, oh, he's not the person I hoped he was. And to Ray's incredible credit, she steps back. She doesn't go along with him because of the connection they feel. She stands by her principles and her beliefs, and she recognizes that he's trying to manipulate her with all that, you know, nobody else understands you except me. You're nothing. You have no role in this. Nobody cares about you except me. That feels incredibly manipulative and abusive to me. And so you see that on Daisy Ridley's face in that scene, just her crushing disappointment at that. And then later, this, the sort of look they exchange at the very end of The Last Jedi when they're all escaping on the Millennium Falcon, where she just looks like she wants nothing to do with him at that point because of the choice he's made where... He had the opportunity to turn his back on all of his past evil deeds and chose not to, chose instead to embrace them, chose instead to continue them. And so after that, she recognizes what he is and what he's doing and wants nothing to do with him. And Daisy Ridley's acting is really excellent displaying that. I just, you mentioned the kiss they have at the end of Rise of Skywalker. I'm just imagining a scene where they tried to have a kiss at the end of The Last Jedi, the way that Daisy Ridley was acting in that scene. Uh, Glenn's good and dear friend Steve Willey, can you describe what that scene would look like? He tried to lean in for a kiss, and she just gave him a look like she just drank a bottle of pickle juice and just lurched back. Thank you, Steve, for that. And I would just want to point out that the manipulation even continues in this movie. The first half of this movie, Kylo is saying things like, you know, you can't hide from me. I will find you and I will force you to join me. I, you will have no choice but to take my hand. And then when they meet in the ruins of the Death Star, Kylo destroys one of her possessions so that she will have no recourse but to depend on him if she wants to go to Exegol. That's like textbook abusive and manipulative behavior. And so that's why I really can't get behind that story point. I think it hugely depends on whether you read this as romantic or not. Um, I think it is not romantic for all the reasons you described. There's a bunch of negativity, abusive tactics, things that are not okay <laughs> for how you treat other people, but they're still compelled to talk to each other 
And like, I think Ray gets more secure about it as we go on. She understands how to use it. And then they do another silent plan when they're dealing with Snoke and exchanging the sabers. Like she's able to arm Kylo using their connection and they agree on it. Like it's, it's very quick, the cuts that show that they're doing this in their dyad space. And I like the problem solving element. I like that she chooses to use him back as a tool because the job of getting rid of Palpatine needs more than just her. And that, you know, there's things that go wrong during that confrontation, but they set themselves up as well as they can using the situation that they're in. So I'm I'm a Raylo person who doesn't, I actually don't want to see them be sexual with each other. Like, I don't actually read very much sexual stories that have to do with it. It's more the obsession that I think is so interesting. And, like, they're forced into this obsessive situation, and then it develops and resonates and becomes something else. So it's just very interesting to me. I'm fascinated by it. I would just say that the kiss that they have them have at the end of the movie sort of argues against people not seeing it as romantic. Sure. Yeah, I think it was a storytelling mistake. I wish it weren't there. But if you wanted them to kiss, that is a good kiss for them. I didn't want them to kiss, and I wish it weren't in there. That's where I land with it. I will say, though, to be completely fair, you're right. The bit where she passes him the lightsaber and then he's able to fight off the Knights of Ren and that little sort of shrug that he gives right before he just obliterates them, that's a nice moment. And if I was more into the Rey and Kylo storyline, if it didn't turn me off so much, I probably would appreciate it more. But actually, that brings up something I wanted to ask Glenn. Because, I mean, Oana, feel free to chime in. I just think, I know Glenn agrees more with me than with you about Kylo and Raylo. And so I wanted to ask Glenn, do you think part of the problem with Kylo is Adam Driver? That he's just too charismatic and too good (laughs) at his job. (laughs) It's really easy to hate Darth Vader. He's a mask and a breathing sound. It's easy to dismiss him as evil and ignore him. It's harder to do that with Kylo because he's so charismatic and there's so much to like about Adam Driver and the job Adam Driver is doing that it bleeds over into the Kylo character and I think makes people more sympathetic and more amenable and more forgiving towards Kylo than I really think the character Kylo deserves. And so I would ask Glenn, because I know he agrees with some of the things, if not a lot of the things that I have said about Kylo, do you think part of the problem with how that character is perceived and thus how that character is written in this movie to try to appeal to that perception, do you think part of the problem is Adam Driver? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think Adam Driver is a shockingly charismatic actor. And I think his work in the last two movies is one of the things driving the Bendemption. And I think even in this movie, even as the kind of storytelling shifts that have to happen to make the Bendemption happen, even as those storytelling shifts, I think, are arbitrary and not earned, I think Adam Driver really does everything that he possibly can as an actor to sell it and I'll be damned, he almost gets there. I mean, his scene with Harrison Ford 
is so much more compelling than on paper it has any right to possibly be. Just the exchange at the end of that scene where he just says, Dad, and he says, I know. Just the significance that the two of them put into just like a few words, that I think is what really gets so much of the way to justifying and really portraying the Ben Demption in that moment. It's beautiful. And one of the things I like about the storytelling aspect of that scene is that it tells us a few things. It tells us that he is full of regret. He's full of regret over killing his father. It didn't do what it was supposed to do for his power and his trajectory. But then even beyond that, he's been regretting it. Ray calls him out on it because they have this shared flash that includes him remembering the death of his father and what he did. Then they do so much physical and script echoing of that scene on purpose. Their positions are the same. They're looking at each other on the same angle. Han touches his face in exactly the same way that he does in The Force Awakens immediately before his death. It shows all the regret. It shows the grief. It shows the sort of negotiation because Kylo wishes there's things he could have said to Han. And also there's the added dimension that he has just felt his mother's death and it's truly too late to go home. And he conveys this in almost silence. He has so few words to actually utter. And I got all of that information from his performance and Harrison Ford's as well. It was an excellent reappearance of him. I was delighted. I thought he was never going to darken the doorstep of the franchise again. And they got him in there for probably one day. And it was amazing for me. Also, it was probably looped due to their uh, location. It was near water. So I'm sure it was looped. And it's fucking gorgeous. It's so good. It's so good. The thing that I'm missing from that storyline isn't anything that any of the actors could have provided. As with a lot of things in this movie, it's, I think, a script problem and a storyline development problem. Scott, when we were doing our Star Wars score shows recently, you mentioned a through line where in Revenge of the Sith, Anakin does one bad thing and kills Mace Windu and then decides, I did one bad thing, I'm evil now, I'm joining the Emperor even though he's a salamander now. And then in Return of the Jedi, Luke unleashes his anger and his hate for about 35 seconds, and the Emperor just assumes, oh, he did one bad thing, he's a Sith now, I have him. And Luke kind of subverts that and shows that you can lose your cool for a second and you can do something that's going a little too far and you can come back. And that really connects with Luke's storyline in that movie, where he is the person who believes that there's good in Darth Vader. He's the person who believes that anyone can be redeemed. And the part of Kylo Ren's characterization that you can read into in this movie is that he tells Rey, when they're fighting in the wreckage of the Death Star, you can't go back to my mother the same way that I can't. He decided he did one bad thing. He's done a lot of bad things by that point. A whole lot. He's leading a fascist army for a while by then. But he's decided, I did some bad things. I cannot go home. I cannot go back. There is no return. There is no redemption. That's what he decided in The Last Jedi when Rey begged him to come with her. And he decided, I've done bad things, there's no going back, I'm not going to be redeemed. That, I think, was a fascinating character choice because 
it's resisting the call of the hero in a way that I think was very compelling. And a lot of that, too, was Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley, of course. And what I was missing in The Rise of Skywalker, if we had to do the Ben Demption, and if we were going to put everything we have as far as acting and musical support and all of the like meta elements into conveying and justifying the Ben Demption, what I was missing was the moment where he decided I was wrong about that. I think that's what the scene with Han Solo was supposed to convey, and as moving as I found parts of that scene, I don't think it conveyed that specific point. And so, what I'm missing from Kylo's characterization here is how exactly he decided he was wrong, and that he can go home, and that he can turn around. That I still don't really understand. It's not in the script, as you say. It's not articulated. What I feel from that is in the scene with Han, which is immediately following his mortal wound and his mother's death, which of course he feels. So his father's gone, his mother's gone. And I think what happens in his head after he speaks with Han is that his sense of home, going home, going back, shifts from his mother and father to Ray, his partner, his dyad partner. And he can still go home to Ray. He can still join Ray's sensibility. So I think it's that he's his options. He thought they were all closed to get away from what he was doing. And he sees an opening. Like Leia's death is like, there's no option there. And also if he's to follow Ray, he will not confront his mother. She's gone. That fear that he had because I think he did have a fear, like, how do you go home to Leia if you've done the actions of Kylo Ren? Like, holy shit, that's not there anymore. So Ray's call, Ray's draw on him gets louder because this thing with his mom is not actually going to happen. It's done. So I felt it, I, and I think it still works, but I, I do hear your point and accept your argument that it's not in the script because it's not. I almost think... Glenn, when you were talking about Anakin's reaction to the dark side and going dark, it sort of reminded me of the Ben Demption. Because the Kylo Ben storyline is sort of the mirror opposite of that. It's like, what? Well, I did a good thing, now I'm good again. And it's like, no, all those evil things you did have consequences. You can't just, like, decide, well, I'm on the light side again, ollie ollie oxen free. That's something that I think also kind of gets shortchanged because he dies almost immediately after the Bendemption, or after the Bendemption is completed. And one thing that I think would be a new and interesting place for a Star Wars movie to go maybe would have been to have him live and to have Rey especially, but also everyone else, just staunchly refuse to forgive him for any single thing. Because, you know, he helped defeat the Knights of Ren, and he helped defeat Palpatine and all that, but he still murdered Han Solo, and he still led the First Order for a year or two. Let's not get into time differentials between movies, because that's a mess for literally every Star Wars movie. Oh, I am going to want to get into that later. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, all right. I'm not here to judge. He also, don't forget, killed all of the other students at Luke's Jedi School. 
Uh, yeah, that, maybe I just don't remember The Force Awakens well enough. I kind of thought that the other students became the Knights of Ren. He didn't kill all of them. Some of them became the Knights of Ren, and the rest of them weren't killed. Oh, okay. There was a faction thing. But regardless, he has done, even just on screen, so many terrible, reprehensible things. This is something, like you said, Scott, that you can do when your crimes are fictional and haven't affected real people. The good acts that he does at the end of The Rise of Skywalker don't undo anything else that he did. So I think it would be a very interesting place for a Star Wars movie to go, to have someone like that try to redeem themselves and do what they can to help after they themselves made everything terrible, and then to live and face consequences and to face the honest reactions of the people that they've spent all these movies hurting grievously. It, it obviously wasn't anything that this movie was interested in doing, which I suppose is neither here nor there. I understand why they didn't want to get into it, because it can be a very incredibly complicated issue. I mean, I could see that being a really interesting story point to explore, where, like, he is genuinely repentant. He has, you know, turned over a new leaf, so to speak. He did, in fact, help save the Resistance and save the galaxy from the Emperor. But he still committed all of those crimes. And you can't just say, okay, you can't even say no harm, no foul, because there was a fuck of a lot of harm. And so... That would be really interesting to explore. How do you handle that situation? How do you judge all of the crimes he's committed versus the good that he's done and is trying to do? And if you put different characters on different sides of that, you know, Rey is more forgiving towards him because she has this connection to him and she knows his heart a little. Finn is very, very not forgiving because he was kidnapped and made into a stormtrooper and he's not here for any of this he's good now business. That would be a really interesting thing to explore, but it's a very, very complicated topic that I don't think could ever have a satisfactory conclusion. Yeah, I kind of want to see a Good Place episode about that. Seems like a good place to talk about <laughs> like, all of that. It's true, though. Like I think what Glenn was kind of getting at, and Scott, you as well, is that death is too good for Kylo because you're dead and you don't. You're not paying enough. You're paying something, but not enough. Well, what the death does is it helps avoid that whole thorny situation of should we forgive him? Should we punish him? You know, should we sentence him to prison? Should we sentence him to execution? Should he have to make financial restitution, assuming money exists in this universe? You avoid all those really complicated, thorny questions by just having him die as like sacrificing himself in an attempt to make up for his previous evil doing. I think it's so interesting that he does this force action for Ray, and I think he's fully aware that it might cost him his life and he does it anyway. There's something about that that really gets me. While we're on this topic, I had a quick thought that I wanted to get in, which was um, the title of this film, The Rise of Skywalker. One of the things I like that has to do with the relationship between Ray and Kylo, the Raylo relationship, 
is that you can read the theme, the title, into Ray's story and into Kylo Ren's story. It's just a theme thing. It's a mood thing. It's, again, not fully articulated in the script. But I like that Ray is not an Obi-Wan Kenobi descendant. She's not a Skywalker. Her lineage is from Palpatine, which maybe we'll talk about that later, about how that was put into the story. But anyway, she comes to terms with all this. And then she comes to identify herself as part of the Skywalker legend. And I really like that moment where they return to Luke's home planet and she looks over her shoulder and sees Luke and Leia, who both parented her and guided her. And she feels comfortable taking their name. And I I think that's actually an amazing PS for the story. Like, it's a very good place to end it. So that's Rey rising into becoming a Skywalker, like getting through her challenge. And she's a Skywalker now. And I feel that she has earned it. And then the other way to understand that is with what's happening to Kylo, who has a Skywalker lineage, the son of Leia, the grandson of Anakin. He comes up out of the dark, if you want to understand it that way, because he makes more humanitarian-based choices towards the end of the film. So it's talking about both of them. And I really appreciated the artistry of that. Like, I see it, and I think it was intentional. I strongly disagree about Ray, And this was another thing that disappointed me. A, I was disappointed they made her a descendant of anybody. And B, I was almost more disappointed that she chose to be a honorary descendant of someone else. Because again, one of the central themes of The Last Jedi was that she didn't need to be descended from anybody. She didn't need to have illustrious parents or grandparents. She didn't need to have a lineage. That's the message that she got in the cave in The Last Jedi. She went there asking, who am I? You know, am I a Skywalker? Am I whatever? And the answer was, she's Rey. And that's enough. She doesn't have to be anything else. She doesn't have to be anything more. She's Rey, and that's enough. Rey can be a hero. And it doesn't matter that her parents were filthy junk traders and nobodies. She could still be good and be strong and be heroic. And I thought that was a very important point. And I thought that was a very important part of her character growth was outgrowing the need that she had to find her parents in order to identify herself and growing into a place where she could just be herself and identify as herself and not as a descendant of anybody and so that's why it was doubly disappointing to me that they made her a descendant of not just a descendant of Palpatine but a descendant of anybody I feel is a almost a betrayal of that plot point and that piece of character growth and it's even more pointless because they made her a descendant of Palpatine but the story was still sort of about how you aren't defined by your lineage. Rey can still be the hero, even though she's descended from the evil guy. If you wanted to tell a story about how you're not defined by your lineage, you could have just stuck with the previously established point that she's not descended from anybody important. But even if you're gonna make her a descendant of Palpatine and tell that story, at the very end, when, they, when that woman asks her, what's your last name, what's your family name, I wanted her so badly there to say, it's just Ray, because it doesn't matter who I'm descended from or what my lineage is, I can define myself. Instead, she chooses to glom on to a better lineage. 
I hated that point. I think all your points are excellent, Scott. I agree with them as critiques for sure. I guess where I am with it is I'm I am trying to receive what was given to me and see positive points out of it. Like I, I wanted it to work. Like I know this about myself. I'm trying to be at peace with what was given to me. I agree that they abandoned this like critical piece of characterization and that the the concept that you don't have to be in a lineage. Like that was not awesome. But since they did it, <laughs> that's where I'm at with it. I think that is an even wider element of the movie, even past Ray in particular, that I feel is just disastrous for this movie. Okay, that's probably hyperbole. That, that's a wider thing that I feel is very, very disappointing and very wrong-headed about this movie, is that it keeps desperately desperately grasping for lore explanations for things that do not need lore explanations. Rey isn't just Rey. She's a Palpatine. She chooses to be a Skywalker. Finn isn't just someone who developed a conscience. No, it was the Force. He meets the other ex-Stormtrooper, and, and she says that you know, it wasn't even a conscious decision. It was just a feeling that they had that impelled them to mutiny. Why can't it be a decision that they made? Why can't one of the themes be, as it was in The Last Jedi, and as I think really, I don't just want to complain that this movie isn't The Last Jedi. I don't just want to be complaining over and over again that I liked another movie better. I'm trying to have perspective here, but I think that thematic element worked a lot better when, rather than the Force impelled us to mutiny or my lineage influences whatever, I think a thematic element that works much better is that individual people, alone or in groups, can decide to be better than they've been taught. Rey has been a slave, Rey has been a scavenger, Rey was sold by her parents, and she decides to be an epic hero. She decides to be a Jedi. Finn was abducted in childhood and brainwashed, and he decides to be better. And that would actually play perfectly into the Poe storyline from this movie, where he was a drug runner and decided to be better and decided to fight for freedom. And also, like, the entire cast of Rogue One. Right? Yes, yes. And Han Solo in the original trilogy. And so many characters who meet our heroes or, or hear legends about the Jedi or, or whatever and decide to be better people and decide to join this cause. And that's something, it's way, way off screen and way, way off the script. But isn't that, by implication, one of the things that Lando and Chewie were doing when they were gathering the entire galaxy as much as they could to come and save the day at the end. They were finding individual people, individual ships. It's not a navy, it's just people. Even the First Order Major General or, or whatever recognizes it's just people and they're deciding to stand up and they're deciding to be better, to make a better galaxy for themselves. Like, we all have to individually and collectively make a better world for ourselves by being better ourselves and inspiring other people to do the same. That, there are elements of it there, but by obsessively linking Rey to lore lineages, 
and suddenly deciding that people leaving the First Order and, and the mutinying stormtroopers are guided by the Force or something, I think really severely undercuts that and really does the movie a disservice. I kind of liked all the Force-sensitive stormtroopers because with the retcon of Rey's lineage, we no longer have the point that you don't have to be descended from some important Jedi in order to be a Jedi. You can be just anybody that happens to be Force-sensitive and be a Jedi. And now that Rey is no longer the exemplar of that, I'm glad we have a new group of people who can be the exemplars of that. I would have preferred if Rey just remained one of the exemplars of that, but, you know, if wishes were horses, then this would be a horse movie. That got away from me. It kind of is a horse movie for a couple of scenes. <laughs> well, that was definitely one of the moments that I thought was a lot of fun. Yeah, when true. they charge yes. across the surface of a Star Destroyer on horses. Yes. That was great. It was so random and weird and actually not going to work at all, but okay. Like, we're there. <laughs> Here it is. Yeah, for all that so many elements of this movie are, like, desperately trying to tie into the others, that, I think, was a really fresh sequence. The ground attack on the Star Destroyer, the whole attack on the Star Destroyers in atmosphere, that, I think, was pretty cool. It was. It was. On that note, I think we should endeavor to be a little more positive, or Scott and I at least could, could be a little more positive, and talk about some more of the things that we actually liked about the movie. Let's do that after a quick break to talk about all of the multitudinous things you can find on the Place to Be podcast feeds and website. Andy, what do you think about hearing about all the things on the Place to Be? I'm raring to go, man. I'm ready. I couldn't agree more. We'll be back after this. Consideration paid for by the following. Place to be nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have over two dozen podcasts available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceMation.com. We now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceMation Wrestling feed, we dive into topics running the gamut from today's WWE to the glory days of yesteryear and the ins and outs of the territory days. In addition to our full-length shows, we also deliver to you special pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation Pop Feed is a veritable treasure trove of great content. Offered tremendous shows covering the land of movies, television, life, comics, and sports. 
brought to you by the most knowledgeable and insightful folks in the podcast world. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our previous podcasts over the past eight years as well, by subscribing to our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available at PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using www.placeimitation.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And be sure to join us at our forum at Bigelow34.proboards.com for all sorts of wrestling, sports, and pop culture discussion each and every day where you can make your voice heard. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceMation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. In addition to all the other contributions to Star Wars Month, we have plenty of great content for you on our two podcast feeds here at Place to Be Nation. The Place to Be Nation pop feed includes The Hard Traveling Fanboys, the longest-running weekly episodic comic podcast in all of Place to Be Nation, featuring the talents of Greg Phillips and Nick Duke. DC for You, an in-depth look at the world of DC comics with Russell Sellers and Todd Weber. Marvel Age, where Nick Duke, Tim Cable, Russell Sellers, and Todd Weber are going through the history of Marvel Comics. Laugh-In Theater, a live-watch comedy movie podcast hosted by Andy Atherton. The Glenn Butler podcast, Our Spectacular, which brings you deep thoughts on pop culture and the wider culture from the minds of Glenn Butler and my family and friends. The Year in Pop, a deep dive into pop culture year by year, hosted by Andy Atherton, Scott Criscolo, Dr. G, and our friend, Mr. Diamato. Sunday Groove, a podcast for music lovers, hosted by David Sunday. Plus, special topical podcasts and pod blasts as events warrant. The Place to Be Nation wrestling feed includes deep dives on professional wrestling from the 80s, 90s, and today, including Body Press Your Luck, a brand new wrestling game show hosted by JT Rosero and Jordan Duncan. Plus, monthly pay-per-view reaction shows and much, much more. Don't forget to check out placetobenation.com. We have a variety of voices bringing you articles on topics in the worlds of wrestling, sports, and pop culture, as well as our mainstays, such as the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, my weekly link roundup covering things I've seen online that make me laugh, make me feel something, and sometimes make me think, and I hope they do the same for you, coming to you every Wednesday. If you're shopping from Amazon, be sure to click on the Amazon banner on the right side of the Place to Be Nation homepage, or use the link placetobenation.com slash Amazon. And now, back to the show. And as we get back into the show here, I want to indulge the power of positivity a little more. Scott, we've been really negative on this, and I know there were things that we actually liked. Tell me, what was your favorite part of the movie? My favorite part of the movie. The second time we went to see this, in the seat right next to me, there was a little girl, and the next seat over was her father. I'm assuming it was her father. It could have been an uncle or something. I don't know. And as the movie started, when they flashed up, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then they did the opening crawl, I could hear him. He was reading all of that to her because she was too young to read it. And so he was reading her the title card and reading the opening crawl to her. And I really loved that because... When I was five years old, going to see Return of the Jedi, that was me. I could read a little bit, but I couldn't read fast enough to catch all the subtitles. 
So Dad had to read me all of Jabba the Hutt's dialogue. Because I couldn't read fast enough before it was taken off the screen. And so I really appreciated that. Like, I, I, I have a lot of bad things to say about this movie, but I hope that girl fucking loved this movie. Oh my god, I didn't pick up on that at all. I, I was on the other side. That is so sweet. That's incredible. It was really very affecting to me because I had that experience with Dad when we saw Return of the Jedi. I love that. That's beautiful. Oh my god. Okay, I'm just sitting here grinning. I'm sorry. This isn't good podcasting. <laughs> uh, Alana, please uh, get into some of your favorite moments. I really loved the new character. I think his actual name is General Pride, but he's the other Imperial officer that we see a lot of. He's the one that sniffs out that Hux is the mole and shoots him. <laughs> I loved him. He gave so much to his brief appearances, and he has this like classical gravitas that they gave to officers in the Empire. And then he has one line that says he's been in service to Palpatine, their whole relationship. But that guy's presence was so strong. His line readings were incredible. His energy in discovering Hux was so dark and quick and decisive. And I liked him as a foil for Hux because he's a slice of what Hux could have been if Hux were effective at all. Like he's a dream <laughs> version of Hux. So I liked seeing that. And I also like, just to touch on Hux a little bit, he didn't have that much to do. But the people in, that I was watching the film with cheered when he shot everyone that was supposed to shoot Finn and Poe and Chewie as well. So there was a cheer for that. And I like it. The explanation isn't that Hux has like an emotional turn. It's that he's sulking about Kylo Ren. So I liked that. It was a little bit tongue in cheek and quick and also like perfectly explains his actions because he's fucking petty and always has been. I agree that Richard E. Grant as General Pride was pretty great. Yeah, he really does a lot with a little. Yes. Yes, he does. He is so cold and stoic and just oozes evil the way you want the Imperial officers to, just the way they did in the original trilogy. I disagree about the treatment of Hux in this movie. Maybe I was reading into the way he was presented in the last two movies differently than J.J. Abrams. <laughs> and the other creators, but it seems to me so incredibly out of character for Hux to betray the First Order, no matter how much he hates Kylo Ren, and obviously he hates Kylo Ren, he hates Kylo Ren by the end of The Last Jedi, but I always saw Hux as, <sighs> I'm going to indulge real world allegory again, I always saw Hux as like a mainline traditional Republican who likes all the fascism, but just wishes the Supreme Leader would tweet less. I didn't get that at all. I always saw him as someone who, especially from his, like, deranged Nuremberg speech in The Force Awakens at the Starkiller base, I always saw him as someone who was entirely on board with the fascism and the Empire, but just wanted to do it more efficiently than the, like, wizard, crazy ideologues who happened to be running the place. He only had that reaction to Kylo, though. He never acted like that when Snoke was the Supreme Leader. He was always obedient to Snoke. The only thing he did was he kept trying to 
advance himself to be more important and more powerful than Kylo. Yeah, there's a favorite fun tension there. Yeah. I actually, personally, I thought Hux was possibly the character that was treated the best in this movie. As in the most true to his character and the most logical conclusion to his storyline. That he would turn on the First Order just because it's led by Kylo now and he can't stand Kylo. And then he is summarily executed for his treason because the other people are so much more serious about this fascism business than he seems to be. Oh, the summary execution was great. I just thought the line, you know, I don't care if you win, it seemed so ridiculous to me for Hux to not even care if the Resistance winds up winning. I mean, of course, if you want to say the absolute most important possible thing is that he hates Kylo and that overrides literally everything else, I suppose you can get there. Not even caring if his side wins just because it's led by Kylo just seemed... For Hux, it seemed beyond the pale to me. See, I don't see him as being, for want of a better term, partisan in that way. I don't see him as a true believer. I see him as someone who was power-hungry. I see him as someone who wanted authority and wanted power and saw Kylo as his chief rival for that power and authority. And when Snoke was in charge, he tried to make himself Snoke's best leader so that Snoke would give him more power and authority. And at that time, the biggest barrier between him and more power and authority was the fact that Snoke favored Kylo. And then once Kylo became the supreme leader, Hux knew that he was not going to be able to acquire more power and authority because his chief rival for that power and authority now has all of the power and authority. And so I think it makes perfect sense that Hux would switch teams if he thought that he could come out ahead in the end, if he could be the hero spy, if he could be, you know, the, the one that helped the resistance win, he could turn that angle towards more power for himself. Also, his messages, his specific treasonous actions were designed to show the resistance where Kylo was. Like, he was trying to get Kylo killed at the expense of the First Order. But, like, to me, it just ties in with what I think is an overarching theme of the entire thing, which is the danger of obsession, which is, like, a really basic thing. But watching obsession take someone's judgment over is very compelling, and there's lots of interesting examples, including this one. Another moment that I really enjoyed was we see Dark Ray in the trailer, in the hood, with this other energy on her face. And then what actually happens with that, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed it for a couple of reasons. It added dimension to Daisy Ridley's power as an actress because the actual things that she said were Leia's words, but they were creepy as fuck. They were so scary. And that's all Daisy's power. That's all Daisy. And then I liked it because it's an echo of the visioning sequence that happens in The Empire Strikes Back. And since they were trying to tie things together on purpose, I liked that tie. I thought it was really nicely done. And plus they're standing in the wreckage of Return of the Jedi. So that's like, there's just a lot of echoes in that moment. And the visual that happens at the very end of Dark Ray, where her teeth become pointed was so frightening and very effective for me. 
we see Dark Ray in the trailer, and I'm like, oh, fuck, what's going to happen with Dark Ray? And I'm really glad that it was that. I think that was really interesting. And also, like, it again ties into the visioning sequence in The Empire Strikes Back because Luke sees himself as Vader, and it's the same temptation story for Ray, or the same, like, half cautionary tale, half, like, direct appeal to power because the Force is dangerous and expansive and neutral on its own, but can be used either way. Like, I just, I thought that was really nice. I was a fan. Scott, what were some of your other favorite things about this? I thought the speeder chase in the beginning, well, not the beginning, but fairly early in the movie, I thought the speeder chase was a lot of fun. The whole exchange about they fly now, I think was really funny and really well done. Even the second time through, I laughed at that. It was just so well done by everyone there. I mentioned before the uh, the horses galloping across the surface of the Star Destroyer. That's still a really great idea and a really great visual. A lot of that ending battle, I liked the attack of the Resistance and then the arrival of all of the other ships. I don't know that it was executed perfectly, but it's such a great moment when they all show up and then Lando is laughing and then they play the main Star Wars theme while they all join the battle at That's just such a really great moment. I am, among many things, a true sucker for (laughs) Eucatastrophe. Also, memory-wiped C-3PO was a lot of fun. Yes. That was probably the best use of C-3PO in several movies, was memory-wiped 3PO reacting to everything. I really liked that aspect. 3PO, after his memory-wipe, was funny. Sure, yes. And it's interesting, after so many of these movies had a lot of hero moments for R2, to have the last one have a major storyline about 3PO. That is, even at this late date, pretty fresh. Yeah, I really appreciated that he got a hero moment. C-3PO had his hero moment, his moment of sacrifice for the greater good. They kind of undercut it later, but in that moment, it was really good. As with so many things that I liked in some ways, there are elements of it that are a problem for me. I think if they were going to have the emotionally effective moment where 3PO says, I'm looking at my friends for the last time, and he makes this big sacrifice for his friends and their cause, I think maybe they shouldn't have been mistreating him so badly in the entire movie up to that point. Yeah, that's a fair point. The way that they're just casually dismissive of 3PO is just about the same as it's been in many of these movies, especially Empire, but I think knowing that you're going to have that big epic moment, I think still having everyone dismiss him and mistreat him and, like, as soon as they realize that wiping his memory is a possibility, they immediately glom onto that. It's played for laughs completely, but he declares, I just thought of a different idea, and then they shut him down and wipe his memory. That's... (laughs) We discussed in our episode about Solo how much you can really get in the weeds about the personhood and the personal dignity and the rights of droids, but if you're going to think about that at all, then so much of this is just wrong. That's true. Yeah. That does detract from the overall story and from the movie overall, but I still think that 
that moment for 3PO is still pretty powerful. And afterwards, where he's memory wiped and doesn't know what's going on and is reacting to these ridiculous situations that he's always in, but he doesn't know he's always in, I still think that is some really good stuff. It was enjoyable. Yeah, it was fun. And 3PO's short-lived buddy act with Babu Frick was very nice. When he calls Babu Frick one of my oldest friends. Yes. Nice work for Anthony Daniels. Babu Frick, by the way, is also very fun. Yes. That was good. I was into that. I mentioned at the top of it that one of the things that made me like this film as a piece of cinematic art is the use of the settings and climates and stuff. So I really like that there's a strong water thing going on for Ray. Like she was in a desert for so long. And then as she gets deeper and deeper into her journey, she has to deal with more and more water. Like in The Last Jedi, she's called to dive into that hole under the island, you know, and swims into that cave and has that moment. And then this extremely tense fight that she has with Kylo after he reveals her lineage. And she's so angry. She wants to shoot the messenger so bad. And they're on that lee, I guess it is. I think that's the word for it. With the waves crashing around them. And they did a lot of amazing cinematography with that. I think it looked really tight. I have no idea what they put the actors through. Like how much ocean was CGI. Like there probably was some. Because those were real dangerous conditions, I think. But it was so fun to watch that and see the ocean. I like that the deeper she goes psychologically and emotionally, the more she has to deal with water in contrast to how she was stuck in a desert for so long. So into that. The other thing that I liked, which was maybe slightly contrived, but I went with it because that's what they gave me, was the opening of the film is Kylo. They describe it in this scroll. He's in a rage trying to find the Sith Wayfinder, and he's literally killing everyone who stands in his path. And the way that shot is great. I mean, I have a crush on Adam Driver, like that's not a secret, so I enjoyed seeing that for multiple reasons. But anyway, I enjoyed that, and then I liked how it was immediately paired with Ray being extremely physical, trying to do the full Jedi training. And there's another beautiful moment calling back to the OT where she has to deal with the little robot while blindfolded. Since she's doing the Luke story, because that's what they're doing, or at least there's many elements of the Luke story, I enjoyed seeing that. So yeah, like seeing those two getting ready for being very physical later, I thought that was a nice use of the script. Like it's so easy in a giant franchise to like lose track of stuff and have continuity problems and just like unfounded stuff. They did this extremely carefully in The Force Awakens, like giving Rey a reason to be able to physically handle a fight with Kylo. Like she's done all of that mountaineering for lack of a better word when she's stripping the ships and she uses a staff to defend herself so they give her all this physicality and i liked seeing that again giving both characters a ton of physical work to do so that they can be in fights and be believable we see that also in the last jedi because the fight in snoke's chamber is so physical and so arresting so i like that they gave them so much to do as a theme in this 789 You just reminded me, I really appreciated the fact that as part of this mission that Rey's on, she once again finds herself inside an Imperial wreck, Mm -hmm. searching for parts that she can salvage that are important. I thought that parallel back to Force Awakens was pretty nice and really well done. Oh yeah, that Death Star would net her like a million portions. (laughs) It would. (laughs) 
I appreciate the thematic element of that opening sequence that you were mentioning, Alana, in the way that it parallels Kylo and Rey and it underlines their duality like so much of the movie builds on and uses and emphasizes their duality. I did feel like that sequence and a whole lot of the movie actually was edited like a trailer montage. So much of it moved from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing without really time to absorb anything or dwell on anything for a vast amount of the movie. It felt like so much of it was a frenetic montage. It was quick, but I think it went with the energy of the opening scroll. Like the way they talk about it is so weird and disjointed and like I expect it to be like that. There's so much going on in the like the three different things that are in the scroll and then there's so much going on visually immediately after. So like I appreciated the freneticism because like there's a lot of stress for the characters. Like there's a race and there's lost people and mysterious fucking messages from Palpatine is supposed to be dead. It goes with the panic. While we're talking about things that we liked about this, and so that I have something positive to say rather than just reacting to your positives with, mm, I didn't actually like it. One thing that I really appreciated that this movie did was that it had the main trio of our new heroes together for a large segment of the movie. The mission that Finn and Poe and Ray go on together, I think, was really nice to see all of them together and all of them taking part in a storyline together. That was one reason why the speeder chase, I think, came off so well, because all of these people that we've seen in so many action sequences and, and, and so many sequences in the previous films in different combinations or alone are all together and all cooperating and all moving toward a goal. Having them together for so long finally, I think, underlines the thematic importance when Rey keeps going off on her own. I think she abandons them to go off on her own like three different times. Finally having them together, I think, made that contrast work. So that was an element of the movie that I really appreciated. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. I would actually argue they didn't do enough of that. Like, I was kind of disappointed that the climax had everyone separated so much. Not just because it was a pretty direct lift from The Return of the Jedi, where the pilot is in the sky fighting the Star Destroyers, and the other guy is on the ground with the ground assault to take out the crucial installation enabling the Star Destroyers, and then the Jedi is fighting the Emperor, and none of them are with each other. Not just because it's a direct lift from Return of the Jedi, but I just wanted them all to fight together more. You're right that that sequence works so well because they are doing that. I wish they had done it more. That's fair. Let's move on now to one of the things that we have to address if we're talking about The Rise of Skywalker, and that is the integration of General Leia and Carrie Fisher in general into this film. It's an element that I found extremely problematic. I don't know if it wasn't done as well as it could have been because I don't think it could have been done particularly well. I think it causes a lot of jarring moments pretty much every time she shows up in the film. 
For any listeners who might not know, the way that they integrated Carrie Fisher into this movie after she died is basically to use B-roll footage and deleted scenes from The Force Awakens and construct all of the scenes that she's in around the lines that they already had her recorded saying. And so you get some of the awkward, awkward exchanges where, like, you have to force Rey to underestimate a droid for some reason, just so that Leia can tell her not to underestimate a droid. <laughs> and you have the whole be optimistic scene with Greg Grunberg. It's very, very awkward. There are times where obviously they had audio recorded of Carrie Fisher saying something, but not a good camera angle to show her visually saying it. And so you have her saying it from the reverse angle while she's hugging Ray, Or, you know, you have her conveniently hidden so that you just hear her saying it. This was obviously always going to be a very hard problem for the movie, no matter how they approached it. Because from the conception of this movie, Leia was, was of course, going to be very important for the plot. There aren't a lot of ways she could have not been. So, I don't think there were necessarily any good options. I just think that the way that it's executed here is so awkward. I mean, it's one thing to have trotted out the shambling corpse of Peter Cushing for Rogue One, but this is, like, at once in the same universe and also not. It's like in the uncanny valley of the uncanny valley. I don't really know how better to convey it. In terms of investing in the characters and investing in the story, it pulled me out every time. It was just a major issue, I feel. Alana, how do you feel about this? I was terrified that they were going to do a lot of CGI Carrie Fisher because I have read some background that the original concept was a Han story, a Luke story, and a Carrie story. And, sorry, and a Leia story, and, and Carrie Fisher passed away. So I thought if they were too attached to that concept, they would be forced to try to do some CGI shit that was not going to work. So I was actually relieved that they chose to use actual footage. I agree that there were some awkward exchanges that they built out in order to use stuff that she had said. But if you look at her work in The Last Jedi, she does kind of do the guru sort of weird commentary thing a couple of times. So, like, it still was in the character, even though, like, maybe in a dialogue sense, the stuff was awkward. It still worked for me. I enjoyed what they did with her death because I like how, if you're force sensitive, how much stuff you can do before it's dangerous to you, I think, is very scaled on how trained you are. So she's not particularly trained. Um, we learned some background that she started training and then stopped on purpose. So, like, her action to call to Ben is fatal for her when it's not fatal for Ben and Ray to talk because Leia hasn't done it as much. And she's also, you know, elderly at this point. That action takes her out. I, I believed in that and I felt that. I was just so filled with relief that they didn't CGI it. But I, I again, made a lot of room for them to solve their Leia problem. And, and I was pleased with it. Scott, what do you think? I completely agree that it was kind of awkward or it felt kind of awkward, and even more so on second viewing. It stood out a lot more. For one thing, Leia speaks completely in aphorisms now. Like, she didn't have any dialogue that was, like, relevant to the conversation. She, the only things she says are one-sentence aphorisms that other people can respond to. 
She's an NPC. <laughs> kind of. And that just makes it stand out more. I mean, uh, Tim, what did you think whenever she came on screen? Okay, that's an edit point. Yeah, yeah, I had the same sort of feeling. that I, I would agree with that. I understand what they were trying to do, and it was an admirable attempt, but like you said, it's something that kind of pulls me out of the movie because it feels so forced and because it feels awkward. You know, when she's giving Ray advice about her training and the force and to believe in yourself and to be yourself, that's fine. But then when you get to the part about don't underestimate a droid and that entire be positive scene, at that point, they're just trying too hard. And and you're right, it did take me out of the story a bit. Uh, Eric, what did you think about Leia's aphorisms? Actually, I don't think that's got anything to do with anything. Quite right, quite right. Like I said, this was going to be a tough nut to crack no matter how they went about it. Like, Elena, I absolutely agree. Doing a ton of CGI Carrie Fisher would have been pretty bad. And I think they promised Billy Lord pretty early on that they wouldn't do that. Because I think a lot of people would have found it disrespectful in a way that I suppose they didn't for the shambling corpse of Peter Cushing. If only because Peter Cushing's been gone for so much longer. Exactly, exactly. And in the end, of course, the only CGI Carrie Fisher they did was CGI 1983 Carrie Fisher with CGI 1983 Mark Hamill, which is fair enough. I thought Mark looked great. Uh, Carrie, I caught the CGI a little bit more, but not so much with Mark. Maybe because it's only literally two seconds, I don't know. Yeah, I thought they both looked pretty good, but Mark Hamill looked a little better there. I believe, if I recall correctly, the original plan Obviously, if Carrie Fisher hadn't died and had been, you know, the featured emeritus role in this movie, that, I think, was originally planned for the opening of the film to have a big flashback to Leia training and apparently, like, predicting the future death of her son, which is another story element that just seems so arbitrary to me. If she sensed the eventual death of her son, if she pursued her Jedi training or something, then how do the previous movies happen? How does she put him in Luke's Jedi school? How does she react the way she does to things in The Force Awakens? Like, I don't... There's so much I don't understand. The part that didn't make any sense to me was when Luke pulled out her lightsaber and then gave that whole speech about... Leia always wanted you, a person she hadn't met yet, to have this lightsaber that nobody's ever mentioned before because you'll need it to kill a person who we all knew to already be dead. Here, congrats. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. It, that was just a weird story choice. I, I, I'm not sure what, the, what was happening there. That whole Luke sequence was... I mean... A lot of it was fine, but there were some things in there I just really didn't like. Like, I I know this is a minor point, and fine, but I feel very, very strongly that Rey should have been the one to force-lift the X-Wing out of the ocean, and not the ghost of Luke. Yup, that was weird. I think that could have been an important moment for her just to, like, prove her own strength to herself. For Luke to just point out, like, you have another ship, it's at the bottom of the bay. And she's like, no, I can't lift that up. And Luke's like, sure you can. 
I think that could have been a really big scene for her to like prove herself to herself. Also, how durable are these ships? That X-Wing still works after being at the bottom of the bay for 10 or 20 years or whatever. Yeah, and Ochi's ship in the desert. Yeah, that too. The whole... Maybe I'm nitpicking, but I tend to get nitpicky about things that, like, don't grab me and that I don't like. There are a lot of things that I would ignore in a movie that I otherwise like. But, again, Ray deciding to fuck off to... Oh, God, what was the name of that frickin' island? Octo. Octo, yes, thank you. Ray deciding to fuck back off to Octo Island in the first place, I think, is really just, again, the complete opposite of her entire characterization in The Last Jedi. Like, I understand that she's suffered a setback and she's failed at something, and really... Failing at one thing and then going into hiding forever is the Jedi way. So, in a sense, that is the moment she truly became a Jedi. But, I mean, it's literally going backwards. But in a story sense, it feels like going backwards for her character. I actually didn't mind that. I thought that made a certain amount of sense. Assuming she feels really bad, she feels like she gave in to anger... She feels like she shouldn't have killed Kylo, and so she thinks she's going bad. And so she removes herself from the situation and goes to a place where she knows Jedi can go to remove themselves from the situation when they feel like they're going bad. That actually is a story point that makes a certain amount of sense to me. And having Luke's Force Ghost appear to sort of explain to her why he was wrong to do that and why she should still go out and try again and it's okay to fail once in a while. Basically, Luke giving her the same lesson that Yoda gave Luke in The Last Jedi, I think could have been really good. I don't think the way they did it in this movie was as good as I wish it would have been, but that particular story point, I think, is actually a pretty good way to go about it. Before we wrap up here, let's talk about some of the other characters in this film, starting with the new old main villain, the old Emperor Palpatine. Scott, what did you think about bringing Palpatine back, using him as the main villain of not only this movie, but in retrospect, this trilogy, and in retrospect, the entire Ding Dang saga, and his treatment and his role here? I didn't like it at all. I said in the non-spoiler section that they didn't need to make this a sequel to all nine movies. It just needed to be a sequel to the sequel trilogy. And I think bringing back Palpatine was a mistake to begin with. And I think the way they used Palpatine was another mistake, if not a whole series of mistakes. I didn't like pretty much anything about it. And not the least of which, just apart from any other story point, how the heck old is Palpatine at this point? Like, he was pretty old in The Phantom Menace, and that was like 60-odd years ago. Not to mention, he already died in the interim. Yeah, well, I mean, when you die and get a new body grown and basically become, like, the Borg Queen, you know, maybe you get a reset on the whole body age thing. I actually looked this stuff up. I looked up all the dates off of Wikipedia. Oh, of course, another classic section where, where we read Wikipedia. Palpatine, according to the dates on Wikipedia, Palpatine was 84 in A New Hope. 
which means he was 88 in Return of the Jedi when he died, and 119 in Rise of the Skywalker. Not to mention, for Rey to be his granddaughter, Rey is only, again, according to Wikipedia, Rey is only 20 years old at this point. And the actor who plays Rey's father is 30. So if we assume that Rey's father was 30 when he was killed after dropping her off on Jakku, and given when that is said to happen, according to the Wikipedia article, that would mean that Palpatine's son was born when he was 75. Well, you know, with medical technology, people are having children later and later in life. Yeah, I mean, just look at Palpatine and Jedi. He looked hale and hearty. Yeah, it doesn't hold. It doesn't. That's fair. If you're going to make her a descendant, you could make her a great-granddaughter or great-great-granddaughter or something. Although, as I said, I think the idea to make her a descendant was a mistake. But if you're going to make her a descendant, the idea to make her only two generations removed was another mistake. Yeah, that's another parallelism with Kylo that's kind of forced. You know, Kylo is Vader's grandson, so Rey has to be someone's granddaughter since she's not, you know, the daughter of one of our heroes. And by the way, I never really understood the people yearning for Rey to secretly be the daughter of one of the heroes of the saga because, mainly, that would mean that one of our heroes sold their daughter. Even before they introduced the selling part, it would at the very least mean that one of our heroes is a deadbeat that has a kid out there suffering that they do nothing to help. Yeah, maybe I said that before on one of the other shows. I don't remember any of these things once they leave my mouth. But also, you say the same thing about what Kylo said, about they sold you to protect you. They sold her to into... I mean, the fact that they're using the word sold strongly implies this is more than just, like, an adoption, you know? Yeah, when they show Rey as a child again in the flashback in this movie, they very conveniently edit around Simon Pegg. (laughs) So, like, her parents loved her so much, they sold her into essentially slavery to protect her. That's another thing I just... mm. Also, like, again, about plot nitpicking, if Palpatine needs Rey to come to him and strike him down so that he can become more powerful than she can even imagine, why couldn't his son have done that? (laughs) So they don't go there, but I kind of got the impression that Palpatine's son was not Force-gifted, that it had skipped his generation, which is why he was of zero interest. Yeah, that's... I, I, as soon as they decided that Rey is Palpatine's granddaughter, I immediately wondered, does that mean that Palpatine, okay, try to imagine Palpatine having sex. No, let's let's not. Or maybe don't. At the age of 75. Oh yeah, he's already a salamander by then, right? Yeah, it doesn't work. The timeline is nonsense. That's completely fair critique. Or is it some, like, is it another, like, dark side force power virgin birth like Anakin? Or, like, (laughs) what the hell? What about Palpatine's plan where he sends Kylo out to kill Rey because what he needs is for Rey to come and kill him? And he instructs her to take out her lightsaber and kill him with it. 
But then once she switches lightsabers, now his guards are going to kill her rather than letting her kill him? Well, at that point, he knows the Bendemption is on. But also, of course, he sends Kylo to go kill Rey to bait Rey into coming there because he knows how incompetent Kylo is. <laughs> yeah, they don't uh, articulate what his plan is, but I think you can let it flow over you. It was still okay for me. Yeah, sure, sure. Even in Return of the Jedi, and to an extent in the prequels, so much of the internecine, overcomplicated, worthless plans you can just kind of roll with because, um, again, Ian McDermott is just, like, glorious camp. Well, you said earlier there are a lot of things that we might find a way to forgive in a better movie. Exactly, yes. Or if it felt at all like they had decided to do that in the beginning. I, I read that critique and I think it's fair that they actually had not decided what was going to happen with Ray, and it got bounced back and forth. Like, even if it doesn't make sense, if it at least, like, led to something good, like we were talking about before with the C-3PO storyline, that, you know, the way they treated 3PO before the memory wipe is bad, and the fact that they just reversed the memory wipe immediately is bad, but... In that moment, his hero moment was really good and really touching and affecting. And so you kind of overlook the other bad parts of it because that moment was so good. There was no good part of the Palpatine storyline to make it worth overlooking all of the bad parts. So I'm going to do the Palpatine thing, which, you know, under protest, okay. What I enjoyed visually or as a story element is in the fight after Ray. Cuts Kylo's ship out of the sky, which was awesome, by the way. They have the fight over the control of the transport, and we see the lightning. Then this is before the disclosure of where it's going. But that was, I really felt that that was super visceral, super frightening. And also her reaction to thinking she had killed Chewie just stabbed me in the heart. I thought it was beautiful acting. So because they did this fucking Palpatine thing, they, they did give us that moment, which I enjoyed. Yeah, there are so many, like I said before, so many of the other elements, the acting, the music, the visuals, are working to sell everything, and a lot of those are on point. It's just that the story that they're serving and the ways that it's been decided that things are going is, in so many instances, so misguided that it's just kind of a mess. Also, speaking of the Chewbacca thing, I agree that is a really pivotal moment and Daisy Ridley acts the hell out of the horror that Rey is feeling there, except in the very next scene, Chewbacca's alive again. Yeah, they didn't leave that very long. They didn't give it a lot of time, but they had a lot of shit to try to do, so I'm not mad at that. Meanwhile, after they reveal to the audience that Chewie is still alive, you know, our heroes keep doing big emotional we have to do this for Chewie scenes, which I get doing the dramatic irony that we know something that they don't. But when that's the case, it really undercuts the emotion of we have to do it for Chewie. Yeah, they could have put scenes in a different order or something to make that work a little bit better. That was like a mechanics problem. I, I agree. The thing is, 3PO and Chewie aren't the only characters who die and then immediately come back. They do that a lot in this movie. Oh, basically everyone other than Snap Wexley. Like, Snap Wexley's the only one who dies and stays dead. I mean, to begin with, the Emperor comes back, but then later, 
Rey kills Kylo, but then she heals him. And then the Emperor kills Kylo, but then he climbs out of the pit. And then Rey dies, but Kylo brings her back. <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird. But I think that at this point, they've done it so often that it's like a stylistic choice for this film. Well, that's what I was going to say, is that you can get away with doing that once, maybe twice. But doing it like a half a dozen times with four different characters, it's just it's too much for me. Yeah, although I did appreciate the one at the very end because it's another exchange when Ray had brought back Kylo, so Kylo brings back Ray. Like, that mirror was important, although at that point we've seen it often, but still, but again, because it, they act the ever-living shit out of it, it still works for me. It's another mirroring, absolutely. It, it, it's another underlining of their duality, which is the main thing this movie is interested in. They hammer it home. Time and time again. Let's quickly move to some of the other characters. We mentioned Finn before, and I mentioned how I don't really feel that suddenly revealing his, his force sensitivity really serves him that well. I have to argue with you there. They never revealed his force sensitivity. Yeah, they don't say it. The whole movie, he has something he's about to say, and then that storyline never ends, it never concludes, it never goes anywhere, he never says anything. The end. When he's talking to the other former stormtrooper, he just outright says, you know, it was the Force. And he keeps saying he has feelings, which I think that's pretty obvious. <laughs> I agree, it's obvious what they were building towards, but they never actually get there. They didn't finish yet. They never explicitly paid it off, yeah. I was left wondering if all of those references came from, like, an earlier script revision or something, because, like I said, that theme and that storyline just never had a payoff. Mm-hmm. Could have been. I think that um, giving Poe the story beat of having the opportunity to leave and then deciding to stay with the Resistance is a different way of treating Poe, because in the last two movies, that was a Finn story beat. His backstory as a drug runner and all this, I think, is neither here nor there. The story beats with Finn continually asking him about the quote-unquote shifty things he knows how to do is very strange to me. Like, the repeated lightspeed jumps, I don't understand how that's shifty. Jumping the vehicles on desert planet number 702... I mean, they're in a ragtag rebel group that survives commonly on second and third and fourth hand equipment. I would think a lot of them would know how to jump a vehicle. So those story beats with Poe, I don't think quite landed the way they intended. Well, that's part of a larger pattern in this movie, because Finn has those beats with Poe, and Finn is also the one like most offended that he used to be a drug runner. Meanwhile, Poe has the whole thing where he tries to get Finn to tell him what he was about to tell Ray, and he's really annoyed that Finn won't tell him. And then they have the part where Poe says, I I'm trying my best, but I'm not Leia. And Finn's like, damn right, you're not Leia. And, and they also have the argument about, you know, hey, Ray, why are you doing all this training? Why don't you come out on missions? And Finn's like, oh, yeah, he's right about that. They have all these little moments of, like, really stupid, petty tension between them. And that's another thing that never pays off and never builds up to anything. Yeah, I think they struggled with what to do with those two. So I appreciated 
the backstory and tension with the Zori character. I appreciated seeing another woman character. I was excited that it is, um, oh, what's her name? Carrie something. Oh, uh, Carrie Russell. Yeah. So super famous person, but we never see her face. So I was kind of into, they had good energy, they had good chemistry. So they did that. Although I was so sad to see the death of the ambiguously, possibly gay relationship between Finn and Poe. Although maybe Poe's bi. Poe could be bi. Could be. Anyone and everyone could be bi or pan. Ask me how I know. It's true. It's true. So, like, they did have that nice moment discussing how, at this point, Poe's not abandoning the war. That he, he won't. Like, it's such a principled stance. Kind of nice to see it. The one thing I really didn't like about the Poe storyline, and I know I've said this before, I, I think this is the last time I'm going to make this point, Poe's entire storyline in The Last Jedi was learning that charging ahead no matter what is not always the best solution. That you have to stop, you have to think, you have to strategize, you have to follow the orders of your superiors. And the climax to the war in Rise of the Skywalker hinges on Poe charging ahead into battle with the Star Destroyers no matter what. And as the general in charge of the Resistance, he's jetting off in an X-Wing, you know, flying Daring Do. Yeah. That felt like a regression. Speaking of regressions, let's talk about Rose, who was only technically in this movie, I think. Well, the thing that stands out to me, and I didn't notice this until the second viewing, but there's a scene when they're all leaving to go find the Jedi Wayfinder. There's a scene where Finn stops Rose and basically says to her, Hey, you want to come with us and be in the movie? And Rose says, No, I'm going to stay here with the person that's played by archival footage. I don't think it's fair, but out of The Last Jedi, nobody liked Rose. So JJ just canceled her because he's very fan servicey. And so some fans didn't like Rose, and so he canceled her. I think that was a wrong move. Well, I mean, I think the thing to learn about the reaction to The Last Jedi is those are the wrong fans to be servicing. Exactly. Yeah, I've been trying to approach this movie without just ascribing all of the things I don't like to the producers trying to appease the worst people on Reddit. But the exclusion of Rose from this movie, pretty much, really does feel like something that I don't have another explanation for that other than trying to appease the worst people on Reddit. It really feels like so deliberate sometimes. There's literally a scene where another message comes out from Palpatine and Rose says, there's another message, and then Dominic Monaghan walks over and reads it. Yeah, Dominic Monaghan, I think, had more screen time and more dialogue than Rose did. Absolutely. I just feel like some Hollywood party, someone made a bet and Dominic Monaghan won the bet and his prize was appearing in The Rise of Skywalker. Like, it's so random. Well, there's a lot of people in this movie that seem to be there for no other reason other than just to get them on screen. Oh, there are so many cameos in this movie because, you know, everyone wanted to be in a Star Wars movie. It's the end of the saga and everything. Plus all of J.J. Abrams' buddies. You know, Greg Grunberg has an expanded role talking to archival footage. Dominic Monaghan is there. There are so many other cameos, too. John Williams is in this movie. I read that. 
Yeah, but see, John Williams was an actual cameo where he's only on screen briefly and then they move on, you know? Dennis Lawson as Wedge Antilles. He's on screen for a moment and then they move on. That's fine. But, like, Dominic Monaghan and Greg Grunberg, they literally get significant screen time. Yeah. And in a movie where a large part of the climax hinges on people spreading the message of hope in the galaxy and inspiring people to rise up, that's literally Rose's character brief. <laughs> good point. Yeah, good point. That was literally her purpose in the last movie. You know, Finn lost all hope, got cynical, wanted to run away, and Rose showed him we can do good, we can be better, all the thematic elements I was talking about before. She personified all of that. And the whole tour, I guess, that Lando and Chewie go on to inspire hope in the galaxy and drum up support happens off screen and happens without the character who literally personifies that. There, there are so many things I don't understand. On the plus side of this, I am glad that they included Rose because sometimes they just abandon characters and don't explain it at all. And so even though the moment is like super hokey and conspicuous when Finn's like, you want to come? And she's like, I can't. At least it's there. At least her absence is addressed. So I, if they had to do it, I'm glad they at least gave the respect of an explanation in the story, even though it's stupid and forced. True, true. Is that maybe the theme of a lot of our discussion? You know, th there are things that didn't quite land and there are things that were wrong-headed, but, you know, it's not as bad as it could have been. It was better than I feared it would be, which I guess is not really a compliment, but, like, the scope of the job, like, the number of things that they had to handle, like, I, basically, just to repeat what I said at the beginning, on balance, it's net positive, and I'm into it. It's a very competently made movie. Yeah, good word. The cinematography is good. The direction is good. The, the acting is really good. They got some really good actors to be in this. J.J. Abrams is a good director. It's just the story he came up with that I... I wish they could have just had Ryan Johnson write a script and then let J.J. direct it. That would have been very interesting. I did read somewhere earlier that one of the rejected script ideas for The Force Awakens was an underwater romp in the wreckage of the Death Star. Ugh. So, so, you know, we're reaching into the well here. So what did you all make of the dagger situation? I have a few feelings about it, pro and con. So I like that when Ray handles it, it's like calling and whispering and singing to her because that's what happened when she got the lightsaber. Like that's one of her force manifestations is hearing a weapons history. So I kind of liked that. It was emotional. I liked that it looked weird. I liked that the inscription on it and how they use C-3PO allowed C-3PO to have an unbreakable stance. And I liked the irony that they introduced based on that. Like he talks all the fucking time and he cannot say the thing that they needed to say. That was both funny and a good story point. So when they get to the planet where all of the defected stormtroopers are, which happens to be the seat of the ruined Death Star, it was so weird when she held it up and extended that little thing and used it like a, um, I forget the name of the instrument, but they use it on boats. 
that seemed so weird, but also it was weirdly beautiful. What did you guys think? I don't understand the dagger because I was under the impression that was like an ancient Sith artifact or something like that. And yet it points to a particular spot in wreckage that's 35 years old. So that discontinuity kind of threw me off. That was kind of weird because it would have had to be made after the Death Star fell. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's possible that it's an ancient Sith artifact that had been kind of mangled and cut up and manipulated later on. Yeah, that's a good film. But again, that's the sort of allowance I would be very happy to make in a movie I liked more. The whole dagger thing was fine. I thought, you know, a MacGuffin chase is a perfectly good excuse for a romp in an action movie. So sure, why not? And how many MacGuffins did they have in this movie? There was the dagger, there was the Wayfinder, there was the second Wayfinder. You know, there were a few. I kind of appreciated the sensitivity that Rey has to, you know, the flashbacks and everything triggered when she picks up the dagger. I interpreted that more as, like, force impressions of important events on totemic objects. Uh, the way that the lightsaber had an impression, possibly, of, you know, some of Anakin's dark deeds, to coin a phrase, and some of, you know, Luke's experiences with it that Rey saw, and that the dagger had with Rey's parents, and who knows where that dagger's been and what it's seen. So I think having kind of a force imprint or, uh, in your interpretation, Elena, kind of a force sensitivity to the history of, of these weapons, I think that's a pretty interesting element that could be explored maybe by side media a little more. I think it's a perfectly good thing to add to the lore, if we're going to be doing lore. So yeah, that whole element I thought was uh, perfectly serviceable. We haven't said anything about Lando. Do you have anything to say about Lando other than he was there? He was fucking delightful. They gave Billy D like, nothing to work with. Oh, I disagree. I thought, I really liked his scenes and his story. He was fun. He imbued his scenes with, you know, the warm kind of sense of nostalgia and maybe a sense of playfulness that you'd want from Billy D. But, I mean, in terms of actual dialogue and in terms of character, I get that Lando isn't one of our focus characters, but for someone that you're bringing back for that nostalgic hit, I think that the actual content of it was a little thin on the ground. I think that's a fair critique, Glenn. How I read it is that I think they were using the return of Lando to assist them with connecting to the previous material that they were going to probably try to do with Leia and Carrie Fisher was not available, of course. So they brought some nostalgia and connection factor in by using Lando because he's so strongly connected to Han and Leia. Like you think of both Han and Leia when you see him. So I think they were using him to bring mood and bring just a lot of the action adventure energy that is present in the OT. And he looked great. I loved the costumes that they had for him. I like that his face is covered when he collects them out of that festival. And it reminds me of the mask that he was wearing in Return of the Jedi when he's secretly there. Like, it's another way they were echoing previous material that since they chose to do it, I loved all the echoes. People are critiquing it as derivative, but I think it was intentionally done and artistic. There's a subtle distinction sometimes between derivative story elements and, like, intentional cycle of history 
history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, that kind of thing. Yes. And I think Lando's message of there's more of us, there's more of us on the side of right than there are people opposing us. That's something a lot of people have been telling themselves these last several years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think that was actually another moment where I appreciated the writing because, Scott, you just explained what that meant, but he only had those couple words to say, but it was there. All of the stuff that you just said was in words. Yeah, I really liked the role he played. I mean, you can quibble about, you know, he just shows up at a really convenient time, but I agree with you that I think they were sort of using him and his role to sort of fill some of the empty space left by the absence of Carrie Fisher, but I really liked his role and his interactions with Poe. That worked for me. Lando's role in this movie worked for me. Apparently, there was also a cut subplot where Lando had a kid that had been abducted by the First Order and, you know, turned into a child soldier, which I suppose is probably the woman that Finn met that Lando's talking to at the end of the movie. Again, why? That should be his grandchild at that point. Well, okay. <laughs> They're not accounting for the passage of time in these things. Well, like I said, the passage of time in Star Wars is always really, really weird. <laughs> it's not only this film. Like, There's a serious age issue with Anakin and Padme starting in Phantom Menace. Oh, it's creepy as hell, for one thing. It's so weird. So, like, how old people are supposed to be and when they sire children is just consistently fucked. Plus the internal timing of some of these movies, especially Empire and Last Jedi, because, you know, Luke goes off to train with Yoda, Rey goes off to train with Luke, and meanwhile, if you take the implied timeline from the other subplot of those movies, then they would only have, like, an hour and a half to train before they have to jet off to do the climax of the film. Yep. Like, I think the three of us discovered that there's, like, three days passing on Octo, you know, when Ray is, like, doing the classical, like, knock three times on the temple to show me your serious shit. And there's 18 hours going on in the other plot, so that doesn't work at all. Well, this movie, they do the same thing. Like, th that fleet is going to launch in 16 hours, and then Poe and Finn and Rey go on this trek to, like, four different worlds looking for the dagger and looking for the wayfinder, and then they go back to their base and they're defeated, and then they get the pep talk from Billy D. Williams, and then they go launch their attack, and then they have to go round up ships from the core systems to come and join the attack, and all of that apparently happens within these, like, 16 hours? Yeah, that's a reach, for sure. Like, they didn't really need to put a clock on it. It's weird that they did. That's a tendency that a lot of these things do, that everything has to be the best or the worst or the biggest or the most ever. Like, why did this Sith fleet have to be the biggest fleet the galaxy has ever seen and every ship has a Death Star gun? Why couldn't it just be a fleet big enough to obliterate the Resistance? That would have been enough. That would have been an existential threat. They didn't have to go so over the top with it. Yeah, it's artificial tension building. I think they were doing it for the visual because seeing the size of the armada lit by that lightning was really, really great film shit. Like that's using the film media to speak to me. So 
they didn't all need Death Star guns. Like, that is over the top. I completely agree. But seeing the vastness of the Armada creeped me out, and I loved it. Let's draw this to a close now, and let's get out of here. In conclusion, the Skywalker is risen. Peace be unto her. Alana, thank you so much for being with us again and making time to come back and talk about our beloved franchise. Thank you. It is the deepest joy. I was excited the entire week knowing that this is going to happen. <laughs> awesome. Is there anything that you would like to point people to online? Have you uh, done any other podcasts lately? Or do you want people to contact you? It's completely fair if you don't. I am on and off Facebook based on my personal level of anxiety, but I do post publicly quite often and my handle is Alana Jane. So you can find me there and talk to me if you want. I really enjoy critiquing pop culture, especially through political filters. So I will talk to anybody about that. It's my jam. Awesome. Scott, where can people find you? Well, I am a social media maven, and so I recently created a MySpace profile, which you can find at myspace.com slash spectacularscott. Yes. And I'm also on Twitter, at spectacularsco, because they have a character limit on their usernames. Damn them all to hell. If anyone would like to reach me, I am on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram at Bun. If you would like to see political retweets, nothing because I don't use Tumblr anymore, and the occasional picture of my cat, respectively. I am also, these days, slightly obsessed with the Pokemon Go game, so if you would like to be my friend there, just shoot me your friend code on uh, any place where I'm available. I can also be found every single Wednesday at 9 a.m. sharp Eastern Time in the United States with the Wednesday walk around the web at placetobenation.com, a weekly link roundup of articles and items that I have found interesting or amusing or illuminating or possibly thought-provoking in some way, and I hope you do too. Scott and I will be back in the future with another Star Wars episode, we are going to finish our Star Wars score series with a large-scale wrap-up episode, because now that there is a ninth John Williams Star Wars score added to the Pantheon, we have to review that, of course. And we'll also have many lists and rankings and other action items for the entire series as a whole. I look forward to doing it. I hope you'll come back to us then. We will see you next time. I'm not saying consummated on these shows anymore. <laughs> Damn it. Redemption <laughs> 2 completion.